Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Bank of Canada is going to make its next interest rate announcement in a couple of days on the 6th. And the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada, CPA Canada, released its National Debt Dilemma Study on Canadian Debt, Savings, Emergency Funds, and Financial Literacy. And I mentioned this one yesterday. 24% of Canadians would not be able to come up with $500 in cash tomorrow without borrowing or selling anything. You got that? 24%. Quarter of us would not be able to come up with 500 bucks in cash tomorrow without borrowing or selling something. My guest is Garth Sheriff, CPA, founder of Sheriff Consulting in Toronto. He's also a member of the CPA of Ontario, as well as the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Mr. Sheriff is also an actor, stage and film productions, and a graduate in improv from Second City. Garth, thank you very much for the time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Roy. A lot of improv taking place in people's homes and, and lives these days financially, right? Yes. I mean, it's it's a challenging time. And the 2023 debt dilemma study just brought that into the forefront. What a lot of us already know, it's a stressful time to manage our household finances. And as you mentioned, September 6th, we're going to see what the Bank of Canada does. But even before that, based on this survey, we're seeing some, some cause for concern. Yeah. So we have a third of Canadians with non-mortgage debt, are not confident they understand the impact of fluctuating interest rates on that debt. It might be hard to uh, for people to believe that, but, you know, the more I think about it and the more we, we talk about it, it is it's it, it can be a, a difficult landscape to navigate. But did that number surprise you? It, it didn't surprise me. I think... What what number did surprise me was a the percentage of people who grade themselves A to B in terms of personal finance skills, which which is around forty seven percent. And I think part of that is that sometimes we over maybe overthink how much we know about our personal finances, mm-hmm. and then we don't execute proper behavior to manage our budget, especially when there are changing circumstances that's most likely going to affect Canadian households negatively if interest rates rise. And already interest rates are pretty high. That includes credit card debt non-mortgage debt as well. So there, there needs to be some uh, introspection about uh, how well the household really understands financial literacy, under, understands their cash inflows and outflows, and how they're going to manage the next few months uh, if cash flow and, and credit uh, card debt and other debt increases. Yeah, and it can collide and it can create an almost instant uh, chaotic situation in people's personal and family lives. You've also found that a third, over a third, 37% of Canadians with non-mortgage debt have borrowed to cover day-to-day expenses in the past two years. And yet 47% of Canadians told you they grade their personal financial skills at A, as A or B. 
Yes, exactly. The dichotomy between those two statistics is, is striking. And it, it's not really, we don't want to blame or shame anyone. I, I think you want to have a level of confidence with your household finances. You want to be able to spend and provide for your family, while also having discretionary expenses that might be more of a want than a need. But there does come a time where you have to start looking at what you're spending, especially if there's uncertainty building towards a, a place where you're, you can't manage your, your debt. And that 37% that you mentioned, Roy, having to borrow to cover day-to-day expenses, there's generally warning signs in a household. And there are warning signs that it's, it's, it's almost like really getting to the point where it's very hard to retract and get back to a, a better, healthier place. You want to have the warning signs well ahead of that to know that you need to do something today to change your spending habits, to change your your household finances so that you can really avoid the stress of hitting a a, a debt crisis in your house. Yeah, I know our listeners can go to cpacanada.ca forward slash debt dilemma. But what are some of the warning signs that folks should be paying attention to, Garth? Yeah, that statistic you mentioned, Roy, the 37% uh, that have to borrow to cover day-to-day expenses, that's a real alarm bell. Um, The other parts of this is knowing what cash flow is coming in and out of your house on a monthly basis. Um, One of the keys to managing uncertain times, and as we approach September 6th, and we've had a number of rate hikes, and this is not even talking about mortgage debt, but really the, the surveys focus on non-mortgage debt. If you have a mortgage, that's also going to increase the stress of the household. Mm-hmm. One of the keys is to track your spending and see what your spending looks like so you can know what you can actually change so that you can potentially have more money to put towards paying off debt or at least creating a cushion for any other changes that might impact the household negatively. Yeah, this is the one, though, that really... Uh... Stuck out to me, and I've mentioned it a few times, almost one in four, 24% of Canadians would not be able to come up with $500 in cash tomorrow without borrowing something, borrowing money, or selling something. A quarter of us. Uh, It's a a pretty significant statistic. 24% would not be able to come up with $500. And again, part of this is with financial literacy and managing your financial household, there's sometimes a feeling of shame, sometimes Mm -hmm. a feeling of, I should be able to deal with this on my own. And really, if you're in a position like that, that is absolutely an alarm bell to do something immediately. It might not be, okay, let me just deal with this on my own. It might be that you need to seek help. You need to go to, for example, CPA Canada offers a lot of workshops and material to help individuals that might be facing a debt burden, but really to seek help potentially because it might be more than a household or a person can manage. Yeah, sometimes it's a pride thing and uh, no pun intended, literally cannot be afforded. No, exactly. And I'll put myself out there. I mean, there's those that know their financial literacy, for example, I'm a CPA. Theoretically, I'm supposed to know these things, but then there's also the behavior. And coming out of the pandemic, we're still seeing a a behavior that doesn't necessarily track with what's happening with interest rates and some stress on the household. There's still a sense of, you know, missing out on spending and maybe spending a little bit more carefree. And that might have been okay thinking about what we went through. But now at this point, we want to start thinking about our, our finances 
And really, if you do have the financial literacy, if you understand inflows and outflows and budgets, start making a list of wants and needs and, and tracking things and really ask yourself, is this putting my, my expenditure habits, are they putting me in the best position to succeed and, and to have a healthy financial household, you know, four or five or six months from now? Yeah. Uh, CPACanada.ca slash debt dilemma is where you can get more information. And uh, my guest, Garth Sheriff, CPA, founder of Sheriff Consulting, also a member of the CPA of Ontario, as well as the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Garth, thank you very much. Uh, these are sobering uh, facts, but it's important for us to know. And uh, and people do understand, I think, increasingly when this kind of um, information is released, that they're not alone. It's not just them alone. There are others who are in the same situation, and there is help available. Yeah, Roy, I think that's a, a big part of this. Is it, yes, it can feel very, very negative to look at these types of numbers and some of the stats that we both pointed out, but it's also a feeling that we're in this together where a lot of household, households, even those that have the financial literacy in the households are feeling stressed. And so part of this may be a wake-up call to say, okay, we're not alone here, but we need to do something today, maybe seek help, get more resources, and start to track and budget your expenses. U.S. President Joe Biden is offering to house migrants sent to New York City by states such as Texas and Messina, New York, on the Canadian border close to Cornwall, Ontario. Arrest warrants have been issued by Canada for 300 foreign criminals deemed a danger to the public. And uh, they're facing deportation. Check this one out. Nova Scotia becomes the first province to stop holding immigration detainees for the federal government. Other provinces, including British Columbia and Alberta, have declared they will discontinue the practice as well, but will temporarily continue to hold dangerous detainees in prison facilities. Dangerous detainees. Saskatchewan is set to end the engagement by the end of this month. Scott Newark is with us, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association and was Senior Policy Advisor to Federal and Ontario Ministers for Public Safety, Vice Chair of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. Which one do we go first, Scott? Well, there's a number of stories uh, this week that pertain to the uh, the border that I think are of, uh, of interest. You touched on a couple of them. There's another one about a uh, uh, smuggled gun bust in Toronto that actually I think is reason for optimism. But let's start with uh, some of just the larger uh, immigration issues because... Uh, look, this is, as everybody across the country knows, you're hearing about immigration issues almost every day, whether it's, you know, how many uh, international students are being let in, the wrong numbers that are being reported on non-permanent residents, the in a dramatic increase in the number of people claiming refugee status who are arriving in Canada at airports with, you know, quote, legally obtained visas, and then subsequently seeking refugee status because the uh, Safe Third Country Agreement was amended. And then the one that you pointed out that just absolutely floored me when I saw it, it was in uh, Bloomberg News this week, about the fact that uh, Joe Biden has decided that, uh, yeah, you know, I think what we can do is help New York City deal with all these uh, asylum seekers who entered the country in the United States illegally, uh, but are going to be able to apply, and it's they're overwhelming all the cities, the big cities, and so he's decided that they're going to be able to. The feds will help send them to different locations 
including, as you correctly stated, Messina Airport, which is right on the southern border with Canada. And I, I got to tell you, this is nuts, because guess what's going to happen here, folks? Uh, these people, like was the case back when, uh, you know, what was it, in 2015, 2016, when Justin Trudeau issued that idiotic tweet, Welcome to Canada, and we started getting flooded with people coming between ports of entry. So we're looking, are we looking at another Roxham Road? I, you know what, I, I mean, I think the reality of this is, is that the human... Because I, I know Messina very well. I know that, I know that yeah, area very well. Me too. The human smuggling industry is going to get in and involved in this stuff, and if they're going to potentially face difficulties in the United States, why not go into Canada? Yeah. And so they'll just go across the river, which means we need to, I wrote a couple of things about it, make sure that we've got adequate RCMP personnel assigned in the area, because under our stupid system, they currently have the mandate for between designated ports of entry, but we can change that and issue simply an order in council to permit CBSA officers to enforce their mandate legislation between ports of entry. And as I say, make sure that we do this on an intelligence-based process by deploying the technology we already have, but it's not sufficiently uh, deployed, which is automated analytical radar surveillance so that we can track these guys and catch them. And okay. this, this is only going to increase. Yeah, no so, so it, but, it, but, it, but it's, Biden, it's Biden moving the migrants... Uh, or at least opening the, the door to go to Messina on the Canadian border, Cornwall, Ontario. And uh, as you say, the human smugglers will immediately take advantage of that. Now, what about the arrest warrants issued in this country well, for 300 in foreign sense, criminals? It, yeah, in some sense, it's a uh, another aspect of this, because this is an issue which has been around for a long time as well. Wait a second, Scott, hold on a sec. 300 arrest warrants, that means they're, what does that mean? They're, nobody knows where they are? Correct. Okay, and it's 300 arrest warrants for uh, detainees, immigration, people who've been ordered deported out of Canada, okay? But the, um, the number of actual warrants that are out there, active immigration warrants, is 37,326. But of those, 300, as you mentioned, are people who've been ordered a danger to the public. But in our system... We've lost track of them. And we don't use, for example, electronic monitoring so we can track these people. But our system, and I wrote about this years and years ago. You'll remember. Oh, I do remember. The murder of a Toronto constable, Todd yeah, Bayless, by a right. career criminal, Clinton Gale. And our system was so damned inefficient that he ultimately got released on uh, uh, bail and uh, went back to business as being a drug dealer, and he shot and killed this young police officer, yeah. okay, because we were so inefficient and we you know, couldn't get people out of the country. And look, there's a number of reasons for it, but it's something that absolutely needs to be fixed. Okay, Scotty. These are all examples Scotty. of it. Got your I don't want to be entirely negative, though, because there was a good news story relating to this border issues about a uh, gun smuggling operation that the Toronto police uh, busted uh, this week as well when they found 28 handguns in a Toronto hotel room and they got called by the uh, the staff, the cleaning staff who found them. Yeah. I was very encouraged because the police went, found the three guns, and then did they followed the correct procedure, which right. is to seal the place off. Scotty, let's you and I what's called a telewarrant. Scotty, let's you and I pick this up next weekend and get into it in more depth. Set more time aside, okay? All right, all right, buddy. This is a reason for encouragement, folks. Keep an eye on this case. 
So in Saskatchewan, schools must obtain parental permission for children under 16 to change their pronouns, and schools must inform parents of sex education courses with parents having the right to withdraw their children from those courses. So after that, uh, that interview, and it's available to you at globalnews.ca slash Roy Green, all our interviews are there, podcasts are there, and you can subscribe to the podcasts at globalnews.ca slash Roy Green or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. So that interview with uh, Minister Dustin Duncan is there. And I started to get emails, so we went to the phone lines. Here's just one, one email from Adrian. The problem lays with the pervasive attitude that all parents are prone to abuse and are a danger to their own children. So the school system becomes the default for safety, and it does have a role to play, but they need to stop approaching education and child-rearing as a shared responsibility. So I went to the phones. And I'm doing it now, uh, but, but <laughs> it's, a different, it's a different angle, okay? But our phone number is the same, 1-800-263-2428. 1-800-263-2428. I expected last weekend that you'd be on the phones and you'd be addressing this particular policy in Saskatchewan. It's also in New Brunswick. New Brunswick's the first province to go there with this particular policy. And there's been pushback. There's been a, a protest with a couple of hundred people in Regina just yesterday to the Saskatchewan move. But what happened was, we started to get phone calls about what's better for children as far as the home dynamic is concerned. And it was about something completely different. Callers brought up the point or the question of what's better for children, what's better for their mental health, what's better for their development. What's better for their sense of security? What's better for their sense of self-identification? And here was the question, which is better? One parent staying at home and working essentially from home as the stay-at-home parent, while the other parent leaves the home each day and works somewhere else outside the home and brings an income in. So it becomes effectively, as we've talked about many times over the years, the one-income family reality. As the stay-at-home parent who does a lot of work at home, including being there for the kid or the kids, does not make an income. Now, things have changed since we first talked about this 30 years ago. Now there's online opportunity to, to, to earn income. But the fundamentals of the question are unchanged. And the fundamentals of the question are this. And I just said it a minute ago. What is a better reality for the child or children? One parent stays home while the other parent leaves the home to work. Not saying that if you stay home, you're not doing work. Yes, you are. But what's the better reality for the kids, a one-income family or a two-income family? That's the fundamental question. What's the better option for children? Having one parent at home at all times or childcare? What's better? Now, I know some people are going to say, look, it's not possible during these economic times for a one-income family to even exist. 
I'm going to bet you however many loonies I have in my pocket. This is a metaphoric bet. But there are one-income families listening to this program right now. Parents who made the decision that one parent was going to be home with the kids and for the kids, and the other parent was going to leave the home to work. I'll bet you. All of these economic challenges, we've talked about them in depth, we've talked about them already today. All of these economic circumstances, challenges notwithstanding, these families have made that decision. Which is not to say that families who made the decision that both parents must leave the home to earn incomes have made the wrong decision. That's, I'm not saying that. But I am asking the question of you, which is better for the child? And what are you doing as a family? And what's your experience as far as the one-income versus two-income family dynamic is concerned? We received phone calls, when we've talked about this in the past, we would receive phone calls from people who would say, hey, uh, all the kids in the neighborhood were at our house. Why? Oh, because the parent was home. So it wasn't the TV that was doing the babysitting or the, or the, or the child care or the daycare. It was a parent, not their parent, but it was a parent. And that parent would take in, you know, for hours, the uh, sort of run an informal, I guess, daycare. And I want to get too deeply into this without involving you. 1-800-263-2428. And we'll take some time for this one. Because clearly you wanted to talk about it. And it's been a dynamic program in the past. So I'm sure that it's still an issue for many. Um, are you a one-income or two-income family? You know what I'm talking about now, right? Are you a one-income family or a two-income family? And what? Here's the fundamental question. What is better for the child? Parent stays home? One parent? Or both parents go to work? More money comes in if both parents are out working. But what happens to the development of the child? And is it possible in these economic times to, in fact, be a one-income family? All right? 1-800-263-2428. What decision have you made? Is it working? And how did you grow up? Was it one parent stays home? Or both parents go out of the house to work? During one of our programs, it was a number of years ago, a father called in and he said, I decided, without talking to my wife, and he said, I'll always discuss everything with my wife, but I decided, the day, and this isn't a shot at childcare, okay? None of this is. I decided when I picked up my daughter, three years old, at daycare, yesterday, and she said to the daycare person, I'll see you tomorrow, mommy. He said, right there, I decided this is over. 
Okay, 800-263-2428. Katie in Edmonton. Hi, Katie. Hi, good afternoon, Roy. Uh, for the most part, I support the one, you know, one parent staying at home. There's a caveat, though. It depends upon the quality of care. And the, what I'm referring to, I live in an apartment complex. The young dad upstairs ha, uh, is a stay-at-home dad, from what I can tell. Uh, but when the, he's yelling at the children at the top of his voice with the four-letter word, you know, with, followed by you constantly, or the four-letter word, um, I would think that's emotional abuse. And these yeah, no one, no one's going to, no one's going to, Katie, nobody's going to disagree with that. But at its fundamental core, that might be redundant. At its core is the one-income family, one-parent-stays-home model, do you think, better for kids? It's better for kids, again, depending upon the quality. I've got you. What was your experience? What was your experience? I went through both. I was, we were both working, and then uh, he was out of work and at home. Uh, was good for the kids, but again, it depends upon the quality of care mm-hmm. being given by that stay-at-home parent. Okay, appreciate that. 800-263-2428. Susan in Burnaby. Bur- Burnaby, Roy. you're not well, in Ontario. Thank you for Susan. the opportunity. I'd phoned in a couple of weeks ago, but uh, yeah, I wasn't right on point at that at, uh, on that uh, one. Okay, so what do you think about uh, one this one? income family. People, they want the new this, the new that. You know, it's just frustrating because your kids need you. You instill the manners in your children. If you are not home, you have no, um, not jurisdiction, but um, control. You have no control over that. Daycare, wonderful. You know, my daughter works full-time. Kudos to her. She's gone through schooling. Her child was in daycare one year old. Now the child's almost going to be two, and she wanted to chew on her soother. She doesn't use a soother. But when my daughter got to, went to pick her up, the, the, um, the staff there said, I'm sorry, we don't allow ch- uh, children of her age to have soothers. And my blood was ready to boil, the end of the day, the daycare spaces are so few and far between. You have to say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and yeah. I mean, and so, close to them too, they say, oh, only health, healthy food at the daycare. Well, again, who are you to tell me what I'm? Yeah, but Susan, Susan, there's a, Susan, there's it? a choice to be made, right? Absolutely. This is what this and is it, about. What is the better? What is the better environment? What is the proper choice? And it changes from family to family, situation to situation. But ultimately, what is the better choice for the child? What? Did, how? When you grew up, when you were a child, what was the dynamic in your family? If I may oh, ask. Absolutely, my mother stayed home. Absolutely. Did I like my mother? Not so much. But you know, she instilled in me great manners. A good worth ethic. I'm a kind person. Um, you know, I'm very loving to my kids, and my daughter's passing that down to her ch- her child. Why is your daughter? If I I don't want to pry too no. much, but I, I just need to ask questions. Yes. Why has your daughter decided, and maybe her partner in life decided, to 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 have a two year old 
in daycare. Is, is, it, is it just the economy that's causing the issue for them? No, no. I mean, you know, they have great rent, Roy, right now. Uh, they make, you know, between them 135000 mm-hmm. can't afford a house. <laughs> but um, their rent is wonderful because they're in MVC, uh, you know, Metro Vancouver housing, and they're paying 1200 for a townhouse, and that's heat included. Mm, no. And, you know. But, that, but your, your, your fundamental point is that it's better for the child if it's a one-income family. Absolutely. Okay. Are you not going to go on vacations? No, you're not. Are you going to have a great pension? Probably not. But okay. those kids will give back down the line, right? Thank you, Susan. I appreciate it. Burnaby, British Columbia, from Burnaby, British Columbia to Calgary, Alberta, and Owen on the Roy Green Show. Please, Owen, go ahead. Your thoughts. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Roy. My pleasure. Yeah, I was a single parent, I don't know, 15 or 16 years. Uh, still am, actually, but because uh, you never stop being a parent. But, I mean, I, I changed my lifestyle. I mean, I took a job working nights. Uh, found somebody I could trust, give free rent and live in the house. And, uh, so I was always there for the kids when they got up in the morning and make them breakfast and go take them to school. And then I'd sleep while I were in school. And I was always home when they, when they came home after school. I mean, we went without, <laughs> honestly, my kids knew there was no Santa pretty early because, uh, just didn't have the money for those luxuries. So, uh. But, you know, just want to say, you know, there, there are things that could be changed to, to make it more, uh, a lot easier for parents to stay at home. It's like, there's certain things I don't understand. Why is the personal exemption on your taxes ninety seven fifty when the co- when poverty level is 31000 well, yeah, I don't know I, if it, Owen, I don't know if it's still the truth, but it was a few years ago. It may well be today that you can deduct your childcare expenses at income tax yeah. time, but you cannot deduct your, well, you know, the, the, your work that you do in the house if you're at home and you're looking after the kids. They don't let well, you deduct that. Well, and that's my point. Why isn't there, uh, I mean, why, why don't they have income splitting so that? Hello? Okay, yeah, we're getting we're getting a little I understand where you're going with this, but we're getting a little off track. How old are your kids? My kids now oh, they're grown up now. My oldest is getting married in September. He's thirty three and my youngest is turning thirty in December. So if I were to so. talk to your kids right now, right now, not set up nothing, just have a conversation with them and I were to say, Do you appreciate what your dad did? in order to be in the home every day, there for you when you woke up and when you went to bed at night and when you needed to be fed? What would they say? Oh, you know what? And I'll just say this. They tell me every single day that they love me. There you go. There you go. So, you know, and... And, and, uh, and was the sacrifice, I, Owen, was the sacrifice worth it to what? you? When you become a parent, you have to realize that it comes with sacrifices, and and people realize it or not, and a lot of people are selfish. Uh, but I mean uh, that your children, when you your life changes, and your children have to come first. You're a good guy. You're a great guy. Thanks, Owen. Thank you for the call. Thanks, Roy. All the best. Betty in Vancouver on the Roy Green Show. Hi, Betty. Hi. Uh, yeah, I raised four kids. And a lot of their friends who were able to come to my house whenever they felt like it, some of them stayed. Uh, But the real issue with this 
is that when you get two parents going out to work, you get three more taxpayers. You get the father, the mother, and the daycare worker. And they're all paying taxes to a government that seems to have an insatiable ability to spend our money on ridiculous things. That's a very interesting point. I've heard it before. That, and and that just, that, does that not just bring us to what we were questioning earlier about whether in today's economic climate with the inflation, with the interest rates, with everything going up, whether in fact it's possible for families now, particularly if they have multiples of kids, to have one parent stay home? I mean, is that well, fiscally, is that fiscally possible? Yeah, if everybody agreed that they'd had enough mm-hmm. of our swollen ridiculous form of government that's bleeding us all dry. I don't know why you would say that. that. we would have a revolution. Betty, why would you, would, Betty, why would you say that? They only hired 98,000 more public servants since Trudeau came to power. And they will <laughs> tax them too. Yes, thank you so much for your call. Yeah, since Mr. Trudeau came into office, 98,000, 98,000 additional Public servants, 98,000. Our entire Canadian military consists of 63,000 men and women. 98,000 new public servants, though, since 2015. Hey, it's okay. It's okay, right? Sherry is in Manitoba near, where are you? The White Shell. White Shell, okay. Hi, Hi, Sherry. Thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call. It's just so nice to get the chance to talk to you, Roy. Oh, my pleasure. The reason that I want to call in, I just want to share a couple quick points related to the um, stay-at-home parents. Mm-hmm. I just want to encourage young parents, based on my own personal experience, both growing up and raising my two children. My children are now adults, and they have told me several times they are so grateful that I sacrificed to stay home. We did. We couldn't go to Mexico, but we went camping. We had one car. Everything is a I hate to say this, it may sound offensive to some, but it is actually boils down to your priorities. If raising your own children and making sure they're loved and cared for is your priority, then you know what? The granite counters, Instagrammable minivans and stuff kind of take a second. They're not as important. And our place was also the gathering because I was home. And I wouldn't trade it for the world, even though we had secondhand furniture many times. We couldn't keep up with the Joneses. I'm very grateful. I just want to encourage young parents that it's worth the sacrifice. Trust me, you can. I've been able to buy all the fancy stuff later on, my career advance later on, and it will all work out if you put your kids first. You know, Sherry, if anybody is offended by what you said, you said it could be offensive to some, then the problem is theirs, not yours. That's true. I just know that people are a little sensitive when when their priorities don't line up with what their heart knows is right. But that's, uh, you know, that's just my opinion. Yeah, but, but we're, uh, we're, not, we're not attacking the two-income family. No, here. We're no, just looking, I'm we're asking what's best for the kids, right? Yeah, no, I'm just encouraging them. If my kids were, my kids are adults now, but if they could call in right now, they would say, as kids that went through it, maybe we didn't have fancy stuff, but they wouldn't have traded it for the world because they felt safe and they knew their mom was home. Thank you, Sherry. Appreciate the call. 
Thank you. Thank Enjoy you. the rest of your show. I will. Okay. Thanks so <laughs> Bye. much. Bye. Thanks Bye. so much. Uh, Greg is in Lucan, Ontario. How are you, Greg? I'm fine, Roy. How about yourself? Excellent. Yeah, your uh, your previous caller just pretty summed up what I was going to say, but uh, my experience has been the same, where uh, my wife and I sacrificed a lot, you know, uh, to raise the kids, and one of us is always there. Let me ask you, know, you a question. I'm sorry to interrupt, but can I ask you a question? Did you consider it sacrifice at the time? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. I didn't think so. No, this is what we, I was raised, uh, my wife was raised that, that way, where there's always someone at home. And uh, that investment paid off in dividends. Um, like, the, our children were not, not one day uh, left out of daycare. And we had not gone on, my wife and I went on our honeymoon, and we hadn't gone on a trip until like 20, near 25 years later, until we knew our Children were raised proper. Everything was taken care of for them. Get them on their way. And you know what? That relationship today with our children is golden. I mean, they call us. They want to do things with us. We're so tight. And um, and it's just sort of a continuing. Hopefully, we can inst- we instill that into them when you know when they start having their families and that. Um, but man, you know, I think a lot of the problems with young people today is because they're. They don't have that. I think you know what you, you know what you know, Greg. You put a lie to the uh, to the uh, favorite narrative for some people that somehow parents are a threat to their children, <laughs> and it's been accepted by by some folks. Um, and uh, you put a lie to that. You know, you, uh, yeah, I, I you do. I, I couldn't imagine why anybody would think that way. Like it just uh, it seems backwards to me when people would think that way. I, I don't know. Like, you know, we all see society, how it changed, right? Uh, and again, uh, I look at uh, the young people today and, and some of the issues they're having, and a lot of that, I think, is to do with, uh, they're not, I guess what I'm trying to say, really, in a nutshell, is, and I know even mm, my niece and nephews, some of them, they want it all, and they want it all now. Yeah. Can, I say, can I just summarize what I think your relationship with your kids are? Yeah, sure. If you were to call them right now and they saw your number displayed, they wouldn't say, oh, I'm not answering, it's him. They would say, oh, good, it's dad. Oh, absolutely. There you go. Yeah. There you go. We have a conversation on the phone for like, you know, with something small would turn into an hour or two. It's Fantastic. Enjoyable. Fantastic. Great stuff. Yeah. Thank you, Greg and Lucan, Ontario. Uh, Diane's in British Columbia. Diane, where do you want to take this? Oh, I am so in favor of the parents staying home. Uh, I left a career to stay home for my girls, and best decision ever. I just, I just don't think that any daycare, as good as their intentions are, and as well as they're trained, can replace the love of a parent. And you, it goes beyond that. It's, it's they're sick, they get to stay home. They don't get pushed to a daycare when they're sick, and then get all those kids sick. You know, I don't have to worry about trying to balance, oh, I'm calling in sick at work today because my child is sick. I get to give them the attention and the support that they need to develop as eventually adults. And um, I just think it's the best choice ever. Yes, you don't have the same financial picture as, as the people around you, but that's temporary. That's not forever. Thank you so much for your call.
And you're welcome. Thank you, Diane. Can I add a little bit? Yeah, um, sure, please. Um, there's a little bit more to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that it's also really good for the community because there's a parent that's home that's going to the park, that's walking the street, that's taking her kids down, you know, that knows who's home and who's not home for the whole security of the neighborhood. And then you get to know the seniors who are also home so that, that you have an intergenerational type of um involvement for your kids, even if they don't have a grandparent that lives close by. I, there's just so many pluses to it. I, I am so glad we made that decision and I wouldn't change it. Listeners have requested that we engage a U.S. conservative voice to address issues trailing President Joe Biden. Also, the criminal indictments and the arraignments, indictments facing uh, President, former President Trump, and uh, the arraignments that have taken place. My guest is Dr. Zudi Jasser, U.S. conservative voice. He's board certified in internal medicine and nuclear cardiology, former president of the Arizona Medical Association, practicing in Phoenix. Dr. Jasser is a former lieutenant commander in the United States Navy. He's the founder and president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He's the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam and Which Islam, Who's Islam, and other essays. And an op-ed by Dr. Jasser for Newsweek was titled, The World's Red-Green Axis Has Come to Our Streets. Dr. Jasser was also invited to testify before a Canadian parliamentary committee and told us at the time he came away unimpressed by the experience. He also hosts conservative political talk radio in Phoenix. He's been a guest on this program many times, not recently. Zudi, how are you? And I'm sorry we haven't stayed in touch more. Well, it was great to uh, uh, hear from you and uh, see you back, and I'm, gra- I'm uh, honored to be back with you, Roy. Thank you so much. So l- let me start with this question. How deeply, from the perspective that you bring to, uh, to the issue, how deeply divided is U.S. society today? Well, certainly uh, uh, there's the obvious divisions that especially, you know, as much as uh, uh, President Biden claimed to have been campaigning to bring the country back together, there has been no more divisive president. He's been checked out. Uh, the progressivists and radicals that he's allowed to set the agenda, uh, the abandonment of the economy, the inflationary economy, and continued spending on things like climate change and other things that are just sucking the lifeblood out of mid middle America, if you will. You know, you look at house ownership, the expense of house ownership has tripled in the past year. So uh, that uh, those those numbers alone have created a division where songs like, you know, Richmond North of uh, Richmond is uh, getting hundreds of millions of hits within a few weeks because uh, regular America is seeing a Washington that is so far out of touch with America that they just want their property back. They want their money back. They want the government to get out of their lives. And I have to tell you, it's like 1979 all over again. And uh, this is uh, like Jimmy Carter uh, 3.0, if you will. Um, what about the, the uh, and I'm curious about the uh, internals of the Republican Party. President Trump uh, said he is definitely going to contest, and he is contesting, the nomination for the party, and he said he'll do that regardless of what may happen as far as his court um, appearances and uh, court decisions may be. Um, so what's the situation within the Conservative Party of Canada? There are some really um, well-known household names in the GOP who are who are challenging Mr. Trump for the nomination. 
Yeah, and I, I think the first cautionary uh, note is every every primary season for a presidential campaign in the last uh, multiple generations has always had certain names that start ahead and and, and others that switch. Uh, Trump himself, um, you know, when he came down the escalator, nobody had even thought there was a chance, and and yet uh, he became the nominee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the far left has engaged in a twenty four seven Trump media. Uh, attention and with indictments and other things. So in some ways, that's uh, filling up the bandwidth and the oxygen. You know, as we get closer to the primaries, uh, I think uh, things will probably uh, shake up a bit. Uh, The policy differences are are not that significant. If you look across, the primary differences are probably in foreign policy. Uh, But when it comes to uh, domestic policy, uh, uh, fighting against the weaponization of the DOJ, uh, the Uh, criminalization of political disagreement, as we see what's happening with President Trump, uh, really will, you know, hopefully the the GOP voters will settle back into an analysis of what the issues are. Uh, President Trump's administration, the first time around, had a lot of uh, good results uh, from domestic to foreign policy, from economy to the Abraham Accords, you know, and I think uh, a lot of that uh, will start to make a lot more difference as we get closer to January and the caucuses in Iowa and primaries start happening. Could you just give us a, um, a little bit of an expanded view uh, of the Trump indictments and the arraignments and the haste to move forward to trial, particularly in Atlanta? The Atlanta district attorney attorney seems uh, absolutely determined to uh, get this case into the court by, what is it, October? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then other indictments right around right before uh, Super Tuesday. And uh, I, I mean, it, almost the word banana republic no longer seems to have cogency in that uh, free speech has become criminalized. And especially when you're a leading uh, uh, politician. And uh, it's one thing to uh, disagree with methods and comments and other things that President uh, Trump uh, may make that uh, some of us may feel we may not make, but it's a whole other thing to uh, take the attorney generals of each of these states and make them into weaponized uh, tools of uh, employing, um, you know, crimina- criminality or criminalization of free speech and and uh, disagreement with voting. I mean, at, uh, with what happened with the voters. I mean, Hillary Clinton and others have expressed. Uh, similar angst with results and hemmed and hawed on whether they'd accept the results of elections. And and uh, now the the, um, you know, the Democrats on the left have have realized that they don't have anything as far as issues. They can't debate the economy. They can't debate national security. The borders are completely flowing with millions in uh, destroying our national integrity. So what they're doing is basically weaponizing uh, the DOJ and and uh, using uh, their ability to target an individual like President Trump to avoid the issues of the day. And I think they're going to lose miserably when it comes to the election, uh, whether it's President Trump on the top of the ballot or, or one of the other candidates. Um, but right now, uh, it's clearly the focus of where they want to spend all of their money and the taxpayers' money, which is, not, which is another part of it, the expense to the taxpayer of all of this. It's just horrific. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to election night in 2016, and uh, Hillary Clinton would not concede on election night. When it was clear she'd lost, she would not concede. She, she waited until the next morning. So, you know, there was, there was a certain amount of, certainly a lot of denial in, 
in, involved there. Uh, Zudi, Joe Biden, currently there are the 5,400 emails he wrote as vice president using pseudonyms. Not the first time. Senior public officials have done that. But what's your sense of this particular story? Because as soon as it came out, I started to see the the uh, cleansing of the situation, saying, oh, no, it's just... Uh, it's just uh, communication between uh, Mr. Biden and his son. Nothing, nothing to see here. Move along. Well, the amazing part about this story is not only the duplicity and the corruption. I mean, listen, I had a top secret clearance in the military. We use aliases uh, when we talk. The issue is, is whether those those emails are part of the bank of the National Archive. And that's the problem is whether it's uh, House Oversight Committee Chairman uh, Comer or uh, the Senate who asked for these uh, alias emails uh, two years ago from uh, Senator Johnson's committee, uh, the, the response has been completely empty because these are done off the grid. The president's not supposed to do, and the vice president are not supposed to do anything off the grid. And whether it's using aliases or not is not the question. The question is whether they belong to the National Archives. And our President Trump is uh, being indicted because of document uh, protections and uh, um, Biden didn't seem to care on the enrichment of hundreds of, you know, thousands of dollars upon millions uh, for no services at all that were provided. Just simply a name is beyond corruption. Does uh, does the government have a case against Donald Trump? Can they make a case against Donald Trump, which will satisfy a grand jury and then eventually perhaps a, a court a courtroom jury? Well, as uh, a wise sage in court said, you can, you know, a grand jury can indict. A, is it a ham sandwich or a, some <laughs> type of uh, sandwich? Uh, the, you know, the bottom line is it's not really about the grand jury. It's about it's about whether the law and the legal system. Uh, I think we're finding that for the vast majority of the time, the weaponization of the legal system has years later resulted in a vindication by appellate courts or by the Supreme Court. And uh, I think you know ultimately. Uh, this is going to cost in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars for legal defense for President Trump. But uh, I really don't see. And again, I'm not a legal expert. I'm, you know, listening to the expertise of folks like Jonathan Turley and others. And and it's pretty obvious to me as an American citizen that these are all, you know, simply uh, politics and speech that they disagree with and that they're indicting and and uh, uh, that there's really no there there. And ultimately, It'll end up being a, a vindication. An op-ed by Dr. Jasser in Newsweek, or for Newsweek, was titled "The World's Red Green Axis Has Come to Our Streets." Zudi, what's the um, what's the what, what's the basis of the uh, what are the fundamentals of the op-ed? Yeah, so essentially, globally, you know, my family escaped Syria in the mid '60s, and everybody, I'm sure, knows what happened in the Arab Spring against Assad. Um, and dictators across the Middle East have long had sort of a bizarre relationship between, you know, the dictators are, are obviously military fascists, national socialists, if you will, almost like the Nazis of the Middle East. And they had a relationship uh, with the progressivists, with the far left. That's why Code Pink uh, was bizarrely in Tehran. And and you see uh, the Venezuelas of the world working with the Irans and, and uh, uh, other uh, Islamists, if you will. So that's globally called the red-green axis, because while they share very minimal values, uh, they have common enemies, which is obviously primarily the West, Western democracy, secular liberal democracy in America, Europe, and Canada. So ultimately, that red-green axis we saw really come to fruition for the last two generations in the U.N., 
where they focus on Israel and America. But then on the streets, virally, we saw it come to fruition with the riots from the Black Lives Matter movement and elsewhere where they caused unrest and destruction. Uh, and again, it's the same operational, uh, uh, you know, SOP, if you will, like the Taliban that destroyed the Buddhist statues and, and others in, in, in Egypt that were uh, uh, basically burning down churches and other things. They, they use destruction and chaos in order to uh, create a, a ideological swell of sort of a, a image of a revolution when, in fact, it's actually a fascist, theocratic and socialist movement. Where does, uh, where does media fit into all of this? Where does media fit as far as your perspective, your view of media and the job that is done by media in the United States? Where, where does it fit in? Gosh, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question because that's one of the biggest, you know, things I'm trying to address. The media in America has always been called the fourth estate, meaning sort of the protector of the three against the uh, excess power of the three branches of government. But really, this last, you know, 10, 20 years since Obama administration took over has shown that the media has become, in many ways, at times as bad as the government and. Not really a check, but really a, a massive operation of the Democratic Party or of a specific political movement rather than actually a check. So the media becomes an amplifier of the worst of information politics rather than the best and the check on that. And that's why social media, viral journalism, if you will, has become really the, the true check on power. And that's why in the covid pandemic, you and I talked a number of times about the, the government trying to push things down. If you remember the the, the truckers uh, convoys that were uh, acting uh, in the citizens' best interests and other things in Canada, and we saw the same thing, which is the the viral media that we were able to influence as citizens became the primary avenue, and and they even tried to suppress that speech. And just like you and I were just talking about free speech suppression of a presidential candidate in his you know, uh, valid complaints about election processes, et cetera, free speech complaints about many of us having uh, questions against governmental impositions during pandemic shutdowns, et cetera, was all operated by the media becoming an arm, a tool of government uh, and, and a specific political party rather than actual free speech. I have to ask you about Hunter Biden and where he fits. This is a man who appears to have uh, more problems than any one human being should have, more questions about him than uh, are ever answered, and uh, there are there are always stories about the relationship between the president and his son, and there are accusations about what they may have been up to. Uh, I don't know if they're substantiated, remain unsubstantiated, I think. What about Hunter Biden? I think the... the the crazy thing about the Hunter Biden story at its core is the fact that there, there isn't even any doubt that he did absolutely no work whatsoever for the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars that him and his family uh, funneled through just because of a branding of the name. No services, nothing. It's simply obviously a payout. There's never been a response that somehow he was working for Burisma in Ukraine as some kind of expert consultant on anything valid of any kind. No, this is not only a foreign entity that he was acting as an agent of, but but actually doing no work and, and getting paid to continue his his uh, habits uh, that are just uh, uh, perverse. So 
at the end of the day, the, the emails, the, the money trails, uh, you look at uh, transfers of $142,000, $300, exactly equal to the cost of a sports car that he bought the same day that that money was transferred. All these things should not only raise the antenna, but show that the purpose of the Biden family is not to better America, is not to advocate for individual citizens and, and what's right. But to destroy America, and you simply use it as a funnel of uh, uh, income flow, and that's why you know I hope the the House continues to push on this. Uh, we we saw a president who was uh, uh, attempted to be impeached and impeached once by the House for far far what I see as far lesser things related to a phone call to Ukraine, let alone all the monies being transferred, okay. and that uh, clearly President Biden probably knew about was on speakerphone, but really has not spoken about how deep that corruption is that he says his son, who he claims repeatedly is the smartest guy he knows. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 